to the next edition of the guest with us today. He joins us live here on our program. He is a fantastic author. John Clausen is going to be with us here in just a few seconds. Also joining us today from SB Digest, our good friend Don Mazzella, and uh, now of Newsmax, uh, Dan Perkins, also many other... Uh, We'll just call him a syndicated columnist because we don't have... Uh, it would take an hour for me to run down all of his accolades. I'll just refer to him as the great Dan Perkins. And uh, we have our world traveler, IQ Al Rizzoli. He's also a uh, great, great historian. And I know IQ is going to have some questions for our guest today. But let's start with John Kloss. And John, tell us a little bit about your latest book. And uh, then I'm sure the, the, the guys here are going to want to ask you some questions. So tell us about the latest book here and give us a little bit of bio on yourself. First off, I'll go with my bio. I spent uh, 36 years in the medical device industry, starting off with the Johnson & Johnson and moving all, literally all over the country, and uh, came back to the Seattle area after three stops, Laguna, New Jersey, Chicago, back to Seattle. And I spent the last 16 years as a vice president for a Fortune 500 medical device manufacturer, and uh, I retired in January of 15 to complete the story uh, that I had started researching literally a decade earlier on the story of what my father had told me in 1989, what his life was all about, and it was completely different from the perceptions that he had said to his family while his paycheck said IBM, he never spoke about folks he worked with. He, he always talks about the importance of sales. Well, that was all a cover. And when he came back, he talked about how he was recruited at a high school when the government had started a secret NDRC project, National Defense Research Committee, which was basically nerds who can make devices of warfare. And it's well documented now as to how they started that. Uh, and they infiltrated universities. And on my website, I'll have all the universities listed where these NDRC commission programs were because the government didn't have time to build the facilities for all these top researchers to work in. So what they did, they were part of science structures, i.e. MIT, even at Iowa State, where my dad went, uh, along with the University of Minnesota and Cal Berkeley. So that was really the precursor of the uh, final design of the radar that literally went out and captured the German U-boats. Up to that point, before microwave radar came into power, came into existence, excuse me, uh, the U-boats were having a field day on all our shipping lanes, and it would have been interesting what would have happened if, in fact, uh, the microwave radar would not have been developed. Uh, how would we have had our those big trip, troop ships land over in Europe? Uh, that's what my father did. He worked on the advanced microwave radar uh, and then moved to Jacksonville Naval Air Station where they actually installed them in the submarines, airplanes, and ships. But what's fascinating to do the research on in this NDRC 
is that the initial radar committee was composed of arguably six of the biggest nuclear mines. Uh, for example, Ernest Lawrence of the Lawrence Livermore Lab, the gentleman who invented the cyclotron, uh, was initially in the radar program, but then transferred over to the atomic side. And that was a committee uh, within the NDRC called the Uranium Committee. So in June of 41, they did a one-year assessment of what they had developed. And from that NDRC committee meeting, it came up with a memo to FDR that said, we now believe a super explosive is possible. And that was the beginning of the then the OSRD program, which turned into the S-1, which eventually turned into the Manhattan Project. So he walked me through how he was involved. And then in 1950, excuse me, 1948, remember the Rosenbergs who were accused Uh-oh. of stealing secrets? Uh, they had my dad to be uh, told him to become a farmer for a year because they thought they were going to try to turn my father. So he literally left a ballistics uh, calculation uh, development, Allegheny Ballistics, and graduated early from the University of Minnesota, and his transcripts are all bogus. His one year at Iowa State is all bogus because they said he wanted him to look like the village idiot. He didn't want to have a theoretical and mechanical savant walking around and, you know, and publicize it. So he does that for a year. Uh, while he's on the farm, he is doing calculations with drops uh, that are b- brought to him, and he calculates it and signals back when they can pick it up. And then he is hired by the military products group of IBM in this real elite group of scientists called the Applied Sciences under a gentleman by the name of Cuthbard Hurd, who was in a, worked at the Oak Ridge, Tennessee in the earlier years with a, uh, atomic research. So it, it, it's under that light that he just kind of walked me from high school to what he did during the war years, the college years, uh, but he never went to college, just under the guise of being uh, at a university. So, and he just talked for the three and a half days and covered the 50 years. And so, uh, so that was kind of the jest how he did it. Let, and he just said, Johnny, just listen. Let's start with, uh, with Don, uh, Don can Mazzella. I start the, can, I, can I start? Yes, go uh, ahead. Jimmy. Jump in there, my man. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Um, I, I'm going to go way out of left field and ask you a question. How did All you right. initially? Uh, how did you initially feel when you realized what you what you thought your father was was something entirely different? How did you feel about it? Uh, well, that's a good question because I was so I don't want to use the word despondent, but what he told me was so incredible or incredulous that if I were to write down with what he had just told me you'd probably say, I belong in the nut house. Uh, for example, talking about World War II was all about the atomic bomb, Johnny. It's why we got into the war, and it's how we got out of the war. 
I had never put two and two together that the atomic bomb had anything to do with how we got into the war. So when eventually when I did decide to jump into it, I kept thinking about those, what those items, what my dad said. And for 15 years, I tried to forget it. And on my earlier segment, we would not be having this discussion with, with the exception of my father had attached 80 business cards to the bottom of a second drawer in, an, in a very elaborate wire rubber band mechanism that was attached to the bottom of the drawer. So when you went to put that drawer in, uh, it wouldn't go in. And I really got frustrated because I thought something was high on the drawer below. And I finally realized there's something going on. And I couldn't figure it out. And I lifted the drawer up and I looked at the bottom. And all of these 80 cards are atomic this, rocket reactor this, reactor physics, command control center, IBM Space Systems West on Wilshire Boulevard. It's like a plea to me, don't forget what I told you. And if it weren't for those cards, I probably could have just let what my father had told me go away and just claim that, while he was always so serious that maybe the cancer had affected his thought process and he, had, he wasn't thinking co coherently. So when I started this, I was kind of in the back of my mind, I was hoping that, that I couldn't prove anything or, or back it up, but just the opposite happened, where I, I was able to back up literally virtually everything he had told me. And now granted, a lot of stuff now had become declassified, which really helped out. And I feel very fortunate that I was able to stumble in to a lot of declassified documents to, to help with the story. Because let me tell you, going through declassified documents is not the easiest thing in the world. There's not a lot of, how do I say it, support help. Well, what's the name of your book? It's called Missile Man, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen. Okay, uh, Clausen, C-L-A-U-S-O-N or S-E-N? C-L-A-U-S-O-N. Hmm. Well, I'll, I'll give you one more question and I'll turn, uh, yes. turn it over. Yeah. Um, do you do you think, in your opinion, uh, the, the U.S. government could do what it did then, today? You know, I, I just had this discussion the other day with now with everything being taped and recorded and everything I, I I honestly believe it can uh the immediacy of information now though is so incredible um it's it's very possible but boy you really have to have your ducks all lined up it's it's very hard to be completely secret now with cameras and yeah. all the advanced electronics that's available today Yes, but it's well, without a doubt possible. Well, I, I, Jiggy, I'll uh, uh, yield to somebody else. Yes, uh, Dan, do you have do you have any questions for our for our oh, yes. here? Oh yes, <laughs> and then we'll let IQ jump in. Go ahead. Um, I'm fascinated um, for lots of reasons. Um, the first question I want to ask is. Uh, what was it, in your opinion, 
the cancer that caused him to purge himself of what going on or had it just reached a point in his life that he needed to get get rid of it well I, I think it's it's a couple of fold uh, when you are involved in a lot of top secret projects now you have to understand his career is spanning four and five decades because he was recruited at as a freshman at in college, that you, you your exit interviews last weeks at a time. It's the vetting process. It's it's not like a typical exit interview where they say sign the paperwork and don't let the door hit you in the backside while you leave your office. Right. And they were very 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 rough on him, and my mom confirmed that because my dad was also sick, and they're basically telling him he did not exist. Uh, you're not going to talk about this. You're not going to talk about that. And he was, kept getting sick and sick, and it lasted for weeks on end. And I think the way they treated him at the end, and now he knows his life is now basically coming to an end, or at least he had a few good years after the first cancer surgery, that he realized that, how do I say it, he, he had given his entire life and now it was probably some young whippersnapper who was saying, you're not going to admit this or admit that. So I, I think what he wanted to do, now that he was told he was going to be dead in 18 months, and he actually died 19 months later, he says, Johnny, I want to tell you, because not only is the Cold War ending, but I'll be dead too. Now his death so ironically coincides with the exact month of one of the treaties of ending the Cold War with as they decommissioned a lot of nuclear missiles in May of 1991. How ironic is that, that he dies in May of 91? Um, but I think he wanted his story being told as to how he had sacrificed his life uh, for, the, for the better of the, for the good, to keep the world a safer place. Uh, I make a note. Go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you a question. You finish your statement. Um, he knew that he had sacrificed his life. We think my father maybe had four friends his entire life. When we moved in Switzerland, not a single adult ever visited our house. It, it was a security compound. Um, and my mom, uh, obviously... She was under close observation, and their social life was next to slim, although they were very active in their church when they lived in the States. Um, but go ahead with your question. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about whether or not, uh, as you, as you be began to write the book, um, have you written anything before? No. So never have. You, did you self-publish this, or did you go to somebody to publish it? No, I, I went to WorldNet Daily, and uh, my brother knew of an uh, agent who he had known and some of the workings that he had done, uh, a very strong Christian man and really a fine agent. Uh, I'm so fortunate to have met him. But the only writing I had done was medical uh, assessments on medical products. 
Right. And it's called medical staccato. It's like insert this, turn right, <laughs> shake well. Hit. Repeat. Um, yeah. So my, my question then is, as you were writing the book and you were working with your publisher, uh, did did you get any pushback from the government? No. I Well, first off, I hired a very high-profile attorney from the the law firm of K&L Gates, and that's Gates as in Bill Gates' dad, mm-hmm. and verified that what documents I do have I can publish and talk about. I was, I was very, very keen on that. That was a top priority. But I have not had any pushback whatsoever. Uh, the only pushback I had once was when I took the tour of the Lawrence Livermore Radiation Lab. It's still the most active thermonuclear weapons plant in the world. Yes. Down in Livermore, where I was born. Uh, I did receive an email that told me that I could now come a month later than was originally planned. And I told that to, uh, to my attorney, and we started thinking, now, wait a minute here. If you're taking the tour, you set the date. Well, he said, just be careful. Don't talk. Somebody could be watching you. And there's seven of us on the tour. And as soon as I got to the waiting center to take the tour, this gentleman in his early 80s comes up to me and he goes, quote, I know you. And I said, no, you don't. He goes, yes, I do. What street did you live on here when you lived in Livermore? Now, fortunately, I was born there and I lived there until I was four, but I knew it was called Pistana Way. To make a long story short, this gentleman is a retired, one of the top researchers, and I actually asked the question in the tour because they fire off the big laser beam there, one of the largest laser beams in the world. And I said, is this what Ronald Reagan was going to use for Star Wars? And the 80-year-old gentleman chimes up and he goes, well, we knew it wouldn't work, but the Russians didn't know that. So the guy giving the tour asked this guy who had worked at the lab for 30 years, he goes, how is it that you know so much about this laser beam? He goes, I hold most of the patents on the mirrors. So all of a sudden it kind of dawned on us. This guy's here for another reason. Well, we speculate that they realized I didn't lie when they immediately talked about what street that I live on, that I was there just trying to do research. And uh, in what the lab actually looked like when it was a converted naval air station back in 1952 to compete with the lab in Los Alamos. Uh, so if you look at it this way, uh, fission, which we used in Japan, that's incredible power. Put the word the letter I, fission. But fusion is unbelievable power. That's a thermonuclear device. And that was my father's specialty was fusion calculations. And they but when you, if, about, you, if you think back, think about the time when your father went in. It was just after the... Second World War, and we were still in fighting the Korean War, probably by the time he he was hired. And those people who who did the research during the Second World War to come up with all kinds of weapons, including the nuclear devices, lived in an environment much like what you're talking about. They were isolated. 
And yeah. and if you were going to work in covert acti- activities, in this case, designing weapon systems, you know, it, it's kind of like that's the just the the way the life is. Um, I know that I have military friends, generals and such, that served in Vietnam and were on classified missions. And even to this day, many, many years after the war, they refused to talk about the missions, some of the missions they flew, because they were told not to. Oh, you, what's really interesting to read are the documents of the NDRC. And very few people are familiar with the NDRC, the National Defense Research Committee, that it talks about these extreme secrecy. Even FDR, in his own letterhead, says, he jots memos, make sure you keep this memo in the most secretive manner humanly possible. And on one document, FDR goes, quote, I don't think this belongs in my files. It's like, who wants the hot potato in their file? Mm-hmm. That's when they were first informed uh, by a gentleman by the last name of Slazard that, hey, he had letters from Einstein and actually met with FDR talking about what the Germans had already calculated and that the, our country is asleep at the switch. That was on well, October 11th, 1939. Now, the Germans, who had actually, quote-unquote, discovered the chain reaction formula in December of 1938 by a lady by the name of Liza Meitner, M-E-I-T-N-E-R, that started the whole Cold War. That's the chain reaction. And for six months after she discovered the chain reaction, they actually printed it in, Nash, in, in their publication called Nachrevisionshoppen, how to get a chain reaction going. So for six months, that was public information. And then finally the scientists probably got together and they said, you know, we probably shouldn't be printing this. And it stopped. Now, a lot of scientists were concerned that nobody on the American side was fully informed as to what was going on. Hence, Slazard, the Sox memo, and the Einstein memo letter went to Slazard, who took it to FDR. So the Germans were already a year ahead of us. It was at that point FDR says, we better do something. So in retrospect, looking back, the Germans literally have a year to two year head start on us on the activity. So when when you were, um, it, wh- how is your mother still alive? Uh, she passed in 11, and one of my greatest regrets, she kept asking me, can you tell me more about what Wallace did? And I said, Mom, I'm going to do it once it's all completed, and I'm going to read to you every word of the book, but I'm going to read it to you. And unfortunately, she developed a uterine cancer, and we decided that she she could make it through surgery. And I, I come from a large medical family with a variety of nurses and doctors, and she died uh, within a week after the surgery. Well, so she. Do you think she suspected what your father was doing? Uh, 
this is going to sound incredible. I don't think she really cared. I mean, she cared that he was a loving father and that, you know, the paycheck said IBM. Um, she understood because my father never really said when he was coming back. He never said, like, I traveled heavy for three and a half decades. And I'd say to my wife, you know, I'll be back Thursday night. My dad could not say when he was ever coming back. And I, with all the research, when he said he was going to Poughkeepsie or New York or Armonk, New York or Dallas, who knows where he was going. Uh, he could only make phone calls from a secured telephone line. And back in the 50s, secured telephone lines were not everywhere. So how long was he typically gone? Do you know? Uh, anywhere from a couple of days to weeks on end. When we moved to Europe, he moved in March of 1970. Uh, I saw him once until September of 70 when we moved there. So he was gone six months hmm. with a two-day visit in between for me to get a, a visa at the consulate's office in San Francisco. Uh, um, can I jump in here? Um, yeah. And, uh, it's interesting. Um, you're you're the uh, the third son or daughter of of um, men who, in effect, gave their their lives to, to their country without serving in the military. Um, I have a very good friend whose father uh, uh, literally has disappeared but who was uh, CIA for so many years that she, that she never really knew, uh, knew him. And, sure. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it, uh, uh, what she, the things that you're bringing up are exactly the same things that she said to me <coughs> when one night when we had a very long conversation about it. Um, one, one of my adventures many years ago was was going to a, a camp in inside Cambodia during the Vietnam War, and uh, seeing so many uh, non-military military, military uh, there, and uh, being told that I could never um, uh, say what I saw, and uh, it, it's interesting you're bringing up all of these things too, and, and I'm just amazed. I uh, and I think that it's a sad part that probably in today's world. It would be very difficult for the for the government to recruit people like that again. Uh, that will g give up what what your father gave up. It's it's an absolutely fact, I... amazing story there, uh, there, John. Um, IQ, do you have any questions for for John? Well, yeah, what does in conclusion, what does he think of his father's life? Uh, Great question, IQ. Uh, a real hero, a selfless, sacrificing, real American hero. I'm, I'm glad you really came to that conclusion, because most uh, young people today, young, I mean, even if they are 40 years or 45 years old, they don't, they're not as patriotic as they used to be before. Just to show you how he committed himself to what he was working on, there's a very famous computer company called Amdahl Computers, and Gene Amdahl had worked with my father in a, a couple of capacities, 
not only at the Livermore Lab, but on this huge R&D project called the Stretch Computer from IBM. Uh, he had just retired, and Gene Amdahl ran into my dad at church. And this was my brother who was with my dad in Palo Alto. He came up to him and hugged him and said, Wallace, I can't believe it. It's you. And he offered him for him to run any of his companies. And he said, just name your price. I'll pay it to you. Ask whatever you want. I got it for you. And he goes, Gene, uh, I've committed to my cause that uh, I, I have to continue with what I'm doing. And that's the kind of commitment. Here he is. He turned down an open checkbook from Gene Amdahl, who, by the way, recently passed away. I was hoping to, to try to run into him, but I, I didn't make it in time. Um, but just one back, let me just step back. My father did join the Navy when he worked at the Jacksonville Naval Air Station uh, with designing the uh, microwave radar sets. He was under the direction of the Navy with all the installation there, but he was not classically in the quote-unquote Navy because of the research. When you were discussing Germany and the atom bomb, what Hitler did... The biggest mistake he made, which of course was racism, most of the people who escaped Germany and Hungary and Poland and Russia and went to America were Jews. Oh, and they without a doubt. In fact, in my presentation, I did a, a presentation at a large retirement center in uh, a Goodyear, Arizona, which is a suburb of uh, Phoenix. And in the slide, if you look at the various Hungarian Jews who were top nuclear scientists, and I said uh, in my presentation, if you know any Hungarian Jews, you see them at Starbucks, you buy them their next cup of coffee, and just say thank you. Yes, and Edward Teller was Hungary, I think. Edward Teller, the hydrogen Edward, Edward Teller, uh, John von Neumann is Hungarian. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, you also have uh, uh, Slazard, who was the gentleman who actually approached FDR in the White House. Correct, yes. And uh, a, a Jewish lady who was at my presentation walked up to me. I'm kind of a six-foot-one Swedish-looking Swedish type, and she looked at me and she goes, I never thought in a million years a guy who looks like you is going to be saying to thank Hungarian Jews. <laughs> so I, I felt honored to do that, and and if it weren't for a lot of the foreign countries scientists coming to our country, uh, namely to flee Hitler. Well, there's absolutely. So, no, I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the Manhattan Project. When you listen and you read the names, uh, even Oppenheimer was Jewish American from Arizona, if I remember. Uh-huh. Well. My dad's other closest member, his closest mentors, one was John von Neumann, who was on the, hired by IBM to design the 701 and then the 704 computer. Uh, and my dad was on that design team. Yeah. Uh, not only because Edward Teller, as we know, is the father of thermonuclear devices, yeah. uh, brought my dad in that machine 
to the Livermore Lab because it was Teller who got that uh, the, the Livermore Lab actually built. He pleaded with the president in 52, we've got to get this thermonuclear lab built. And he did. So, go ahead. No, no, I said, and he did. He, he succeeded in actually building it. No, you're right. In fact, I have a picture that was in the New York Times. I read the science section very, very closely because the New York Times does a nice review on obituaries of dying off top scientists of World War II. And as we know, there's not that many left. And uh, uh, it, it was just important uh, to relay the stories of these older gentlemen as to what role they played. And Edward Teller is about as significant of a name as you're going to get uh, in the pursuit of thermonuclear. In fact, Edward Teller actually wanted to lay the bomb we dropped in Nagasaki. He wanted to drop a fusion bomb, which would have, <laughs> but would have turned Nagasaki and Hiroshima into a couple of feet of carbon. Everything would have vaporized. Uh, that's the power of fusion versus fission. So, you have siblings, did you say? Uh, I'm the youngest of four. Uh, my brother is seven years older, and uh, my two sisters. And what was, when you take on a project like this, I had to have complete buy-in from my family. I, if You can't have one descending member on this. And each of the siblings had some sort of odd situation that, that had happened. I'll give you an example. Do you remember when the disaster, when the three astronauts died? I believe it was on a Friday. I think it was Apollo 1. They, they yes. died on the... Uh, on the pad. On the, yeah, on the pad. Well, if you look at the history that those early rockets had very few backup systems, and the government was now emphasizing how many backup systems there are on, and my dad was kind of fuming in the garage, apparently, complaining how the government was twisting the story, because my dad knew there weren't backup systems, very few. And my brother had walked into the garage behind him, and, my, and once my dad saw my brother was there... He, he was shocked. He, he, like, completely stopped talking. Um, so when, when you start putting the totality together of, of certain instances, and I had them interviewed, and they're quoted in the book as well. So they were totally supportive of you writing it. Exactly. But l let me tell you, uh, because this is, I hold nothing back in this book. My dad grew up in a very, very abusive home. Uh, his dad was a horrible moonshine alcoholic. In fact, the abuse was so bad they had to leave in his ninth grade and move in with a cousin in Denver uh, to get away from the abuse of being punched and kicked and whipped and you name it. Uh, but when he came back, he was now a bit bigger and he could... Basically, now he could push his dad back away from him. So 
it's the it's the whole life story as well of this gentleman of, of anybody who could have claimed that hey listen life's been rough on me you know uh, he basically looked at behind and, and God kept him going and alive and he in eighth grade he realized that he had certain math powers and by the time he was a senior in high school he was correcting astrophysics textbooks, and he was the main breadwinner for the family. He would get up to $20 a book. So when the NDRC, through the National Academy of Sciences, was scouring the country looking for the top mathematicians, usually they go to Harvard, MIT, Cal Berkeley, Tufts, you know, those schools, one of the publishers says, you might want to check out this young kid in Iowa. He's correcting our astrophysics textbooks, which is very, very rare, even for an older human being to correct them. So, so where did the where did the um, the desire on the part of you and your siblings, as you pointed out a few moments ago, uh, an extensive amount of medical people in your family? Where, where did that come from? Uh, the nurses. Uh, it, it basically came from nursing. Uh, my grandmother, uh, the, my father's wife, no, excuse me, my, that'd be my mom, my grandfather's, my grandmother, big family of nurses, um, there was just a lot of nursing, and then it branched off into MD with my brother, who's an anesthesiologist, along with his wife, an anesthesiologist, in the greater San Francisco area. But a lot of nursing... We even have medical actuaries in our family. Wow. What is the spread so, between you and your siblings in terms of age? You said your brother was seven years he, older? He's seven years older. Uh, my t two sisters, one is five years older and the other one is two years older. So what was their perspective about what was going on when you started to write the book? Was it different than yours? Uh. I never told them that I was doing it until a couple of years after I started because I was doing heavy research just to see what I could find because if I couldn't find anything, then I'm just not going to write what I was told. I had to back it up. And then with the high-speed Internet where you can literally download and see documents very quickly, uh, and so I spent hours and hours in the declassified section of the NSA archives. And like I was saying earlier, or maybe it was an earlier show, they don't, no one's there really to help you out, if you will. <laughs> I mean, you're literally out there on your own with literally millions of documents. And fortunately, when I would stumble into a date, so you'd be reading about stuff. I, I knew the dates I wanted to examine, but you know you're you're reviewing what's going on in Mexico, what's going on in Australia. You know, on those dates, then I stumbled in. Oh my goodness, this is what I was looking for. Did you find so, that? Did you find that some of the documentation was not digitized, and you had to physically go look at it? Well, it had been scanned in where they had it in a PDF okay. uh, at, the, at the NSA archives. Uh, 
but they've now, I guess I understand now, they were digitizing some of the uh, PDF files now. Well, they found, yeah, they, they found a, a system that takes a PDF and digitizes it very quickly. Yeah. I, I, I guess I'd like to go in a, um, a different direction and ask you, um, uh, I guess more, um, uh, did your father ever have the time to take you fishing or do any of the things that uh, dads and, and sons do? Well, that's a very interesting point. My dad was very impatient. For example, we tried once to go fishing. Oh, oh. <laughs> that that was not a, a good experience. <laughs> um, but what my dad loved to do, he loved to hit fly balls. Mm. I lived next to a nice park where you know, I think it was seven or eight acres in size, right on our fence. And my dad would hit balls till the wee hours of the evening, and my mom would get so upset because my dad would always keep hitting, even though it was dark out, and I'd often get hit in the head. <laughs> and my mom would say, Wallace, quit hitting fly balls. And that was how my dad relaxed because he, he felt comfortable around children. For example, when we lived in Switzerland, not a single adult ever came into our house. Now, but my two high school friends, my dad would just be so glad to see them. And, and I think about it now. Here are my high school junior and senior, and I'm enjoying hanging out with my dad. You know, you think about that today. I mean, we, we and the three of us are still pretty good friends. And uh, he had read the book, and he goes, thanks for writing about, the Sundays when my dad would pick him up to go to church to be with the high schoolers. So, uh, but so yeah, as, I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you or uh, laugh at you. you. Your father sounds like my father. He was always impatient with me. But it was nice that you said that uh, um, he hit the fly balls. But what did you do in Switzerland that uh, kind of discouraged? people from uh, coming to visit well he was in a project that was incredibly classified for example at the end of the six-day war russia was real upset that america had supported israel with all of our aid supply lifts and all all the support we gave israel and russia said you know what Maybe if Egypt responds again, maybe Russia is going to support Egypt like you did Israel. And it's well documented. You can go see it as public information that Russia sent in 20,000 advisors in the late 60s when the uh, uh, Nasser was head of Egypt. And we picked up that they had installed over 600 SAM missile sites. Now, remember, Egypt lost 25% of their land to Israel. Obviously, they're thinking about, they're going to try to get it back. So my father moves to Switzerland under the guise that he's building a water dam project in Tehran. Well, 
what he's doing is bringing in missiles because Russia says that they're going to support Egypt. Remember, the Shah was our ally. Yes. Remember, we we put in a, we Americans sent them the first nuclear reactor that was installed in 1967. So remember, when the Shah was our ally, uh, any nuclear project they wanted to do was basically approved. In 1970, they had over 19 reactors slated to be built. And just look how different it is today. They even spell the word wrong, right, and we, we have a conniption. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why there was such scrutiny, because I was followed, uh, and there was a security detail house next to ours, which I later found out. And I was watched, and my father and he always backed his car in, so if he had to leave in a hurry, he drove it straight out, none of this back, putting it in reverse stuff. What what did you do during your life? uh, I spent 36 years initially selling for Johnson & Johnson and having a variety of management capacities all over the country, from Laguna to New Jersey to Chicago, Indirectly and directly, I've managed virtually parts of the the entire country. And then I was hired back to come back to Seattle to be the chief operating officer of the big regional medical device firm here, who ironically had uh, coffee with this morning, the the previous owner. And then I spent 16 years as a vice president uh, of corporate accounts for a Fortune 500 medical company. Did you, as you were writing this book, how many years did it take you to write it? Thirteen years. With an actual writer, that started in 07 because I had three years of hard research because just putting the story together is not easy. We're going five decades of technology and documents that uh, we got to figure out how we can make this all relate. And with a family story, and I have great respect for that researcher slash writer. His name is Scott Fields. Just a beautiful gentleman and kind of did the overlay of, of the whole story. And then it, it evolved over time, and then uh, World Net Daily picked up on it and wanted the story. And they gave me three different ghost writers that they were comfortable with. To finish it up and uh, I chose a female writer because I wanted this family story not only of my dad but of my mom as well if you can believe it it's like it's a, a, a love story Cold War that kind of intertwines itself uh, well, uh, can I jump in here and, and Dan and ask you a way out question because I'm listening to you and particularly what you said about Switzerland, and I'm sitting here and uh, in my own mind, uh, I'm always a, 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 of a mind for conspiracies, but uh, was your father in the latter part uh, just a scientist or was he more than that working with various intelligence agencies? Well, I, I can answer that much better now with something that's happened in the last two weeks. Uh, let me uh, let me.
let me tell you about the story that happened with our neighbor in San Jose, California, who lived directly across the street for years. And he called me up. He's 93. He's sharp as a tack. And he's thanking me for writing the book. And he goes, he starts the discussion with me. John, your father and I had very, very similar backgrounds. We were the only two in the neighborhood with similar backgrounds. So I asked him, were you sneaking missiles around the world with Dad? And he goes, oh, heavens no. But you, you have to understand that he was one of the top technologists. Remember, the Silicon Valley is the home of all sorts of new research, and can it be applied to this or applied to that? And he goes, your father was always invited to a variety of meetings on all sorts of different science topics. And I was invited because he was the head of all sciences at San Jose State University, including a science lab at Stanford. So, and he had 15 departments. And he goes, your dad could talk on any subject, but then he says, I could never figure out what the guy did for a living. Because he, he, he's so broad in his range as to what he can discuss. And then the way my dad traveled, whenever he would leave on a trip, he'd always have a black limousine come up and pick him up. And there were always three people. And he said it really bugged him to watch him always with a gentleman in the back. And then the guy in the back seat with him would always get out of the car first, do a 360, and then my dad would get out of the car. And he goes, I could not figure out what in the world your dad was doing. So when he moved to Switzerland with a water project for Iran, he goes, I knew something was up now. Um, I think in summation, he was an incredible top technologist uh, because he was fluent in so many different areas, in, in chemicals, uh, on, on what can take a lot of heat from a resistance standpoint. Um, in, in the book, I kind of sum it up that it was kind of a nuclear one-man shop, not only in how the nuclear worked with trajectories and getting it from point A to B, but of all the components and all the resistance and all the ceramics that had to be utilized to build such a device. Um, I know it's kind of a convoluted answer for you, but well, it makes me um, makes me want to go a step further. Um, having dealt with a, a few of these uh, people in the past, it seems to me um, how we eventually uh, defeated the uh, uh, the Russian uh, SA sixes and uh, nines was uh, by, by varying the uh, uh, heat the heat signature on the planes and. Uh, when you, the favorite, uh, uh, what really triggered it off, the favorite uh, CIA cover was, was to build some water plant someplace in the world. There are more bogus water plants in the world today. Um, so, uh, and when, when you say that there's always somebody out uh, uh, picking him up and looking around, uh, that ain't no scientist. That's something more than that. But uh, regardless of that, we owe, we probably owe your father, like a lot of uh, other unsung Americans, um, a, a debt, debt of gratitude that, uh, that uh, books like yours, maybe, I don't know if I'd live to see it, maybe 
uh, it'll come out. Uh, certainly, uh, let, let's hope they don't t topple statues to them like they're doing today uh, of, of other Confederate heroes. Uh, uh, back well, that, to you, That's very kind, but uh, that's the assessment that um, I wanted to portray him to be. He sacrificed his life to trying to keep the world a safer place. And this is what I said to my mom. I said, Mom, there's a good chance, there's a sliver of a chance that the world was kept a safer place due to dads being involved with that. And, uh, and I said, we want to celebrate that kind of life. Um, this is not a teardown book. We want to celebrate not only him, but you, Mom. Um, well, tell us where you, you can get the book. Excuse me? Tell us where you can get the book. Oh, you can go to World Net Daily Superstore. It's on Amazon, Missile Man. Um, uh, you can go right, yeah, you can go to Amazon or your local bookstore. All the big wholesalers now are stocking it. Um, j just to show you the sacrifice, if you can believe it, starting in 82, he was living in England where he had brought 160 cruise missiles to counteract the threat brought by the Russians with the SS-20s along the Eastern Bloc countries. I think we're all of the age that we remember the rioting that was going on in Germany and in England. Um, that in his diary, he writes this very mundane, he talks about that the bed was comfortable, good Bible study, got a flat tire, and then on the day Brezhnev dies, he write, writes, I just heard that Leonid Brezhnev has passed, and he talks about the power struggle will now be on, and we, we trust that he'll go into the oblivion of history. And I was thinking, that's pretty strong words from a guy, but then I started reflecting back, Brezhnev probably made my dad's life hell for decades. <laughs> and I was thinking, that was so profound, what he wrote. He goes, the power struggle beyond, and he'll go into the oblivion of history. That's a great line. I've I got to steal it. <laughs> but that I, I, I like to read that in his diary. And then he goes back to the next day. He goes, well, get good soup, good sandwich and soup. Uh it's it's almost he did it just so he could have something to do. Uh, I've, I've, it's very hard to read because he writes in such miniature script. But uh, um, that was very profound for me to, to catch that quote. Are you thinking of donating his uh, his materials to a university so others can study it? You mean the actual? I mean the cards and. Uh, the, uh, you say you found a diary, etc. Oh, oh yeah, that's all going to be made available uh, on missileman.net, and uh, I actually have the slide rule. Actually, have a picture of it. It's a very, very. How do I say it? It's like your, the biggest slide rule on steroids you can imagine, and he wore it on his belt out in the fields doing ballistic calculations. And 
my my dad was given that slide rule after the great debates in John von Neumann's living room with Oppenheimer, Fermi, Einstein present because after the bomb had been dropped, they advocated that we have to try to shove the genie, we have to shove the technology back in the genie bottle. Can't do that. You can't do that, but believe me, there was days of debates in von Neumann's living room, and my dad was in the camp that said, no, we can't shove it back away. Countries have already started ahead of us, but we got there first. And my dad said, us nerds, he didn't use the word nerds, but us scientists have to figure 